Well, today we've come to the end of the book of Nehemiah. We've been walking through this book and uh, studying. It's actually the memoirs. It's the journal of this uh, great leader named Nehemiah. And we're in chapter 13. Next week we will have a sharing service, as you've heard about. And then we're going to do a short series in the month of August, moving right into uh, Labor Day, called The Questions Jesus Asked. Jesus asked 300 different questions in his life. And some of the questions are really, really uh, uh, strange. Jesus would ask a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? (laughs) I mean, that seems obvious, doesn't it? Why did he ask those kinds of questions? So we'll do that uh, during the month of August. In 1945, there were three young evangelists in their mid-20s that came out of the out of the shoot were household names. Billy Graham, Bron Clifford, and Chuck Templeton. Each one was packing out auditoriums all over the United States. Chuck Templeton and Billy Graham were uh, good friends. They both worked with Youth for Christ. One seminary president heard Chuck Templeton preached, and he said this, he is the most gifted and talented young man in America today for preaching. In 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals published an article on the men most used by God during the previous five years, and they highlighted the ministry of Chuck Templeton, Bron Clifford, did not even mention Billy Graham. Bron Clifford was a 25-year-old fireball. Some said he was the most gifted preacher the church had ever had for centuries. He preached in Miami and people lined up for blocks just to get in. He preached at Baylor University and the president of Baylor suspended classes so that the students could hear Bron Clifford preach. He preached for two hours and 15 minutes and people were on the edge of their seat. One writer said at age 25, Braun Clifford touched more lives, influenced more people, set more attendance records than any man his age in American history. He was tall, he was handsome, he was intelligent. And in fact, he was invited to play the part of Marcellus in the, the old movie, The Robe. Anybody ever watch the old movie, The Robe? Chuck Templeton was the same. So in 1945, three young preachers came out like rockets. You've all perhaps heard of Billy Graham. You've probably not heard of Bron Clifford or Chuck Templeton. In 1950, Templeton left the ministry and went into a career in television and radio and broadcast journalism, newspaper journalism. He decided he was not a Christian anymore. He deconstructed his faith and, in fact, said, I don't believe the Bible is true in any way. Ron Clifford, 1940-1954, left his wife with two Downs syndrome children. He died at the age of 35, cirrhosis of the liver in a rundown motel on the edge of Amarillo. His last job was selling used cars in a rundown lot, and his friends raided, raised enough money to purchase a casket, and he was buried in a cemetery for the poor. 1945, three young men extraordinary gifts, preached to thousands of people. In 10 years, one was left. John Bassanio was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Houston for many years. When he finished college, the year after finishing college, he was sitting in the home of his future father-in-law. He was engaged to 
the man's daughter. They were talking about the future. And John Bassanio's father-in-law said this, John, as you get ready to enter the ministry, I want to give you some advice. Stay true to Jesus. Make sure your heart is close to Jesus every day. It's a long way from here to where you want to go. Satan's in no hurry to get you. It's my observation, John, that one of 10 who start out in full-time ministry for the Lord at age 21 are still on track by age 65. They get shot down by morally, by discouragement, liberal theology. They get obsessed with making money, and for one reason or another, 9 out of 10 wipe out. John Bassanio was 21 years old. He didn't believe his, his future father-in-law was saying. So he went home and got a Bible, and in some blank pages in the Bible, he wrote down the names of 25 of his peers, his contemporaries, wrote their names. And over the years, he went back to that Bible and began to cross out names. Forty years later, three of the 25 names were still there. Howard Hendricks over at Dallas Seminary, anybody here heard of Dallas Seminary? did a study of 246 men in full-time ministry who had experienced moral failure over a two-year period. 246 men derailed in 24 months. That's 10 a month. That's two to three a week. Each started out strong. Each man had three things in common. I'm going to share those at the end of the message. You're thinking, okay, fine, Sam. I'm I'm not in full-time ministry, granted. But if you're a Christian, you're a full-time Christian. And God has given you a ministry. And here's my question. Better people than you and me have washed out. Better people than you and me have walked away from the faith. Better people than you and me did not finish well. Here's the question. Why do you think you will? What measures are you taking right now to finish well as a Christian? And I think some of the hardest tests, some of the most challenging tests, actually come toward the end of life. And so many people have walked away right toward the end of their life. So what does it take to finish well? And why do so many people not finish well? And Nehemiah helps us answer those two questions. So I want us to read the first seven or eight verses of Nehemiah chapter 13. And by the way, this takes place, this may be the last event in the Old Testament. It's not, the book is not at the end of the Old Testament, but historically, we're right at the end of the Old Testament period. So, beginning with verse 1, chapter 13. On that day they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the, the assembly of God for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Boy, is that good news? God can turn a curse into a blessing? And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber or room where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain and wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the contribution for the priest. And while all this was taking place, 
I was, Nehemiah's talking, he said, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came back to Jerusalem. And I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. So Nehemiah's not there. He has finished the job, leaves after this great dedication, so full of joy, so many people so grateful for what God had done in allowing them, helping them, strengthening them to build this massive wall around the city to protect the city and also to gain a name for their God in the nations around them. His heart was so full. The people had made promises, we will serve the Lord, we will honor him, we will bring our lives in alignment with him. His heart was so full. Went back to the king who had given him permission to leave. We don't know how long he was gone. Maybe some people say two years, some people say as many as 15 years. But after a while, he comes back to Jerusalem and he discovers while the cat's been away, the mice have been playing. He expected, things to find, he expected to find things just like they were when he left, and he was stunned at what he found back in Jerusalem. The people of God had gone back to their own ways. Solemn vows they made to God, totally forsaken. He must have scratched his head. He had been a, literally been a part of a miracle. He was a part of an awakening in the, the, the city. People had found a new walk with God. That happened when he left. He comes back and he discovers four problems. And he acts to resolve those problems. The same four reasons why people today, many do not finish well. Let's just look at them. Here's the first one. Unhealthy relationships. Toxic friendships. He said, I came back and I discovered that this man named Eliashib, the high priest, had let a friend named Tobiah move into a room in the temple, this massive warehouse-sized room where the tithes had been stored. In those days, they tithed grain, they tithed wine, they tithed, tithed oil. This man had been a, an enemy of God's people. This was the very guy who tried to stop the people from building the wall, threatened them, terrorized them, uh, ridiculed them, made fun of them. But while Nehemiah was gone, this man, a pagan, an unbeliever, moves right into the nerve center of the temple in Jerusalem. This would be like Willie the bank robber being on the bank board and having a key to the vault. This would be like calling the next pastor here and knowing that he's a member of Atheist United. I mean, it just doesn't make doesn't make sense. And Nehemiah couldn't believe his eyes. The house of God had been infiltrated by the enemy of God. So he says in verse 8, I was very angry and I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. I mean, he just kind of loses it. And he, it's, this is like Jesus going into the temple and cleaning the temple out. He throws all this man's stuff out. You can imagine this man coming home at the end of the day and all of his stuff is flying up and down the street in the wind. Verse 9, he says, I gave orders and they cleansed the chamber. He said, fumigate that place. I don't even want that room with the smell of that man. They cleansed the chambers. He said, I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. In our days, we would say we, we took out the, the 
the carpet up. We replaced the tile. We painted. Nothing of that man left there. You say, how did this happen in the first place? And later on in this chapter, we learn that the high priest who was in charge of the temple had a son who was married to the daughter of one of this man's closest friends. Some people don't finish well because they have been highly influenced by a a relationship in their life, a a friend, someone close to them. They become like the people. We become like the people we spend time with. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 2 Corinthians 6 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness and unrighteousness or fellowship with light with darkness. And this does not mean we isolate ourselves as Christians from people who are not part of the family of God. On the contrary, God called us to represent Him and be ambassadors to love people and serve people in the name of Christ and be a witness to people. So we don't isolate ourselves from the world. We're called to be salt and light in the world. But it does mean we're really, really careful that they know where we stand, who we are, to whom we belong. But what happens is a lot of times people who are in our lives influence us negatively rather than us influencing them in a positive way toward Christ. And I have lost count of the number of young people and adults who started strong, fire in their heart for Christ. And because of close friends, teens, adults, lost it. There are toxic people. Amos 3.3 says, how can two people walk together if, if they don't agree? So here's the question. Do the people you hang out with, do the people you rub shoulders with every day, fire you up spiritually or drag you down? Do they pour gasoline on your spiritual fire or do they pour water on your spiritual fire? And this even happens with people who call themselves Christ followers. Sometimes the people who do the most damage to us call themselves followers of Christ. But the reality is sometimes it's close relationships, unhealthy relationships that that turn us and drag us away from a closeness to Christ. And I just love this guy, Nehemiah, because he's courageous. He's got nothing to gain. He's willing to face issues and do something about it. I think if it had been me, I'd have just walked away from Jerusalem and said, there's no hope for these people, not Nehemiah. Here's a second thing. Neglect of worship. Verse 10, he says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Uh, Nehemiah, just, he, he's like a parent who keeps seeing the door closed to their kid's room and finally says, something's going on in there that shouldn't go on. I'm going to open the door. I'm going to have that in our home. The room that was used by this man, Tobiah, was the very room used to store the tithes that provided the living for the Levites who were the worship leaders of the time. So there's no money to pay the worship leaders. So the worship leaders to support their families leave and go out to the fields, cultivate their fields in in that agrarian culture. And the worship in the house of God stops. It's like dominoes falling over. So Nehemiah says, verse 11, I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? When I left, God was first in your hearts. The worship of God was a priority for you, but the passage of time has diminished the importance of the 
priorities, and Nehemiah says, no longer is worship a priority. So verse 11, I gathered them together, I set them in their stations, and then all Judah brought the tithes of the grain and wine and oil into the storehouse. One of the first signs of spiritual decline is neglecting, use these words, the house of God, neglecting the worship of God, particularly in our giving. I mean, you can mark it down. When God's people start to drift spiritually, it often shows up in their giving. They just don't give like they used to. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And when your treasure is Jesus, that's where your heart is. And you find yourself wanting to give faithfully and generously. And one of the secrets of staying fresh spiritually, one of the secrets of finishing well, is giving. If all we do is receive, we're like the Dead Sea. Everything flows in, nothing flows out. And soon there's a stagnation that takes place. Carl Minninger, the famed Minninger Clinic, said, and I quote, giving is a criterion of mental health. Generous people rarely are mentally ill people. Giving is a, it's like a thermostat and it's like a thermometer. Giving registers something of your spiritual life, and it sets something of your spiritual life. So maybe some of us just need to look at what the Bible says about, about giving. In our budget, whether it's on your computer or in the top of your head, is giving to the Lord at the top or is it the bottom? And what Nehemiah shows us is the worship of God gets neglected because giving doesn't take place. So he says, verse 13, I confronted them, and he says, I pointed at treasurers over the storehouses, Shemaliah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable. It's interesting, he chooses people who are leaders on the basis of their character. Are they trustworthy? Because he knows one spiritually unqualified man can ruin the work of God. He says, their duty was to distribute to their brothers in any praise. Remember me, O my Lord, concerning this, O God, and do not wipe out my good deeds, for I've done for the house of my God and his service. Here's a third thing. Being consumed with business. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they brought solid food. You say, what's the problem with this? Well, the problem is, back in earlier days in chapter 10, the people promised they would keep the Sabbath day. They would not do business on the Sabbath day. But they have broken that vow. They've gone back on their promise. The Sabbath in the Bible is the sixth day of the week. The word Shabbat or Sabbath means stop, means cease. And God set the Jewish people, gave them the the gift of the Sabbath day to distinguish them, to make them different from everyone else, to say to them, work is not your master. Work does not own you. You are not slaves. So I want you to practice the Sabbath to refresh yourself and to rest and be with your family, to worship the Lord on that day, to renew your strength. Now, we don't worship on Saturday for two reasons. One is the meaning of the Sabbath was fulfilled in the cross of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4. So Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. 
it is a special day, Sunday, of course, when we remember the Lord and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus who rose on Sunday. But there's a second reason, and that is the Holy Spirit came on Sunday. We're not bound by the Sabbath laws, but the principle is real and true. That is a day to worship and enjoy, to rest, to play together. And just like the Bible teaches that the tithe, the first 10% belongs to God, which means money does not own us, so one day of the week says work does not own us. We belong to the Lord. Dr. John White, who is a psychiatrist in Canada, wrote, money is powerful and it is a relentless pursuer of our worship. So look what Nehemiah does. Verse 15. He warns them. He says, I warned the Tyrians also who lived in the city. They brought in fish and all kinds of goods, sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? You're bringing more wrath on Israel than by profaning the Sabbath. He says, don't you see where this is going? This happened before. We're repeating the past here. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. He says, those heavy doors were not hung for nothing. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load be brought in on the Sabbath day. Verse 20, and then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. In other words, if you can't get in the city, we'll wait for people to come out. Business is business. Verse 21, but I warned them and I said, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. I'll give you the right fist of Christian fellowship. That's what I'll do. From that time on, they didn't come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your love. Nehemiah is not winning friends. He's willing to take the heat. He's willing to stand all alone. He knows that after a few years without strong leadership, we tend to grow soft. Leaders after a few years can allow personal relationships to even override our convictions, and we get kind of beaten down. So Nehemiah has dealt with friendships. He's dealt with the way people spend their time, how they make their money, and now the most ticklish situation of all, careless family life. Verse 23, in those days also I, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Intermarriage of Jews and Gentiles was forbidden. And the people back in chapter 10 had promised not to do this. Now, he's not talking about interracial marriage. He's talking about Christians marrying non-Christians, followers of Christ following, marrying He's talking about spiritual compatibility where the deepest thing in your heart needs to be able to be shared with the person that you're married to, the deepest thing in their heart. It's spiritual compatibility. But these people had chosen wives from various religions and forbidden nations, and the kids growing up did not, they did not know Hebrew. Lots of times language is learned from the mother because he's, he's with the children more than the Father, and language carries, anybody who's learned a second language knows that language carries culture. 
Language carries an identity. Language is more than just words. There's, there's priorities and, and principles, the way of life bound up in, in a language. And realizes Nehemiah realizes that in a generation, the entire Hebrew culture could be lost. The very existence of the Jewish race was at stake. So what does he do? Some of you are going to love this. Verse 25, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Literally, the Hebrew says, I made bald. Apparently, Nehemiah had never heard of the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. Now, this is a new approach to church discipline. Maybe we could practice this around here. What's going on here? He's not just an angry guy, you know, old and angry. He is publicly shaming them. And in a shame-based culture, this is incredibly powerful. He's not cursing them like cussing them out. This is a, this is a, a, a curse from God in the name of God. Desperate illnesses require desperate measures. Verse 26, I made them take an oath. Boy, if you've been pulling my hair out and beating me, I think I might take the oath. I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you will not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by his God. God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Remember, he's talking about from other religions. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act, act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? He said, this is why we went into captivity. This is about God. Friends, you know the problem with God? He tends to tell people how to live. And we don't like that. So verse 29, Then I cleansed them from everything foreign. I established the duties of the priest and the Levites, each to his own work. I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. The end of the book. The end of the Old Testament. How does spiritual defection take place? You might want to just jot this down, or wives, you might jot it down for your husband because he's not going to do it. How does spiritual detection, defection take place? Number one, small compromises. Begin to tolerate little things in our lives. Things that we know are just are not, there's a slow erosion. Small lies. Who's going to hurt what does it matter? We just, we just drop away for a while. Small deceptions, just small things. Small compromises. The entertainment you watch, the jokes you tell, the way you dress. Just little twinges of conscience that you ignore, dismiss. Martin Luther said it's never safe to violate your conscience. Number two, slow leaks. Slow leaks. You go days without reading scripture, praying, and just a few days, and Jesus is just a memory. Just, just a few more charges on the credit card, just a few more out-of-town trips. I don't take my Bible. A few things of watching that what does not honor uh, the Lord. I just want to say, if you're tolerating anything illegal or immoral in your life, if you're working seven days a week, week after week, if your closest friends have more influence on you than you on them, 
You're sowing seeds of defection. And it's only a matter of time. You're not going to get better. No one drifts toward God. We drift away. Third, an unguarded heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. Out of it flows the issues of life. Years ago, back in college days, someone gave me this old book called The Root of the Righteous by A.W. Tozer. And on this, in this book, there's, he, he wrote these essays for an Alliance magazine. Listen to this sentence, or this paragraph. Every farmer knows the hunger of the wilderness. That hunger which no modern machine, farm machinery, no improved agricultural methods can ever quite destroy. No matter how well prepared the soil, how well kept the fences, how carefully painted the building, let the owner neglect for a little while his prized and valued acres and they will revert again to the wild and be swallowed up by weeds, the jungle, or the wasteland. The bias of nature is toward wilderness, not toward the fruitful field. field. That, we repeat, every farmer knows what is true of the field is true also of the soul if we are but wise enough to see it. It's the hunger of the wilderness. General William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, would speak to his young officers and he would say, I want you young men to always bear in mind that it is the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. It's the nature of a dull to go, a knife to go dull. Small compromises, slow leaks, unguarded heart, can I mention one more? It's not going to be on the screen. Broken promises. One of the great barriers to spiritual growth is broken promises. So I just ask, are there any unfulfilled commitments in your life? Any unkept promises in your life? I said I would clean my room. I haven't. Unkept promise. I said I would call dad. Didn't. I said I would give to that missionary and pray for him. I haven't. I said I'd serve in preschool next month didn't. I said I would forgive her. I haven't. Some of us are really great promise makers. We're not so good at keeping promises. So what does it take to finish well? What have we learned from Nehemiah? A ruthless determination to live for an audience of one. That's the pro- that, those are the, the, the prayers. These are not eloquent prayers. Verse 14, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out any good deeds that I've done for the house of my God for his service. Verse 22, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 31, remember me, O my God, for good, like God could forget. No, he's just wanting assurance, like a child wanting assurance from his father. See what I've done, trying to serve you. And Nehemiah, in essence, answers the three great questions of life. Whose anger will I fear? Whose approval will I pursue? Whose words will I listen to? I just love this guy. Just passionate toward the end. And yet this is the end of the Old Testament. And it's a sad story after last week and the joy. It's sad. But it's a reminder that just keeping the rules and just guarding my heart will not do it. Because you move into the New Testament and you find that there's also someone who cleansed the temple.
And you find there's someone also who went to a cross to die for broken promises and unguarded hearts and small compromises and slow leaks. I have a really good friend in Memphis, and every time he sees me, he says, Sam, stay clean and stay close. Stay clean, but more than that, stay close to Jesus. Get your heart in the gospel. Get your heart in his, his work on the cross, his resurrection, his great love for you. I want to close with this, and then I'm going to tell you what Howard Hendricks said. There was an old parable taught by a, uh, actually told by a Haitian pastor about a man who wanted to sell his house in Haiti. He wanted $2,000 for it, and there was a man, a very poor man who wanted the house, but he didn't have $2,000. He could scrape together $1,000, and the owner of the house decided he would sell it to the poor man on one condition. I'll give it to, that. I'll give it to you for $1,000 but I want to put a nail on the door, and that nail's mine. All right, all right. So some time passed. The owner, original owner of the house wanted to purchase the house again. The poor man would not sell it. He said, no, it's my house now. So the original owner of the house went out and found a dead dog in the street and hung it on the nail. It wasn't long before the guy sold his house because of the stench that was there. The Haitian pastor said this, if we leave the devil with even one small peg in our life, he will return to hang his rotten garbage on it. Is there a nail in your life? A nail that you've leased out to the enemy? Here's what Howard Hendricks said about those 246 men that he examined their lives. There were three things that were true of them. They were accountable to no one. They were not having an individual daily quiet time with God. And they thought it could never happen to them. No accountability. No closeness to Jesus. And could not believe it would happen to them. Here's the good news of the gospel. That we not only live in a broken world, but we are broken people. And Jesus loves broken people. And Jesus can take what is cursed and turn it into a blessing. That Jesus not only forgives, but he gives a new beginning. And maybe that's what some of us need now. So would you bow your head in prayer with me, please? Nobody finishes unblemished. Nobody finishes perfect. That's just not possible. And all through Scripture, people with imperfect marriages and imperfect kids and imperfect lives surrendered to Christ and found new life. People who had been considered failures embraced the grace of God and found it was more sufficient than anything else. And they were trophies of grace. So are you. Lord, it's a sobering thing to read the end of the Old Testament history, read the end of this book of Nehemiah. And we thank you that you're a God who loves us enough to warn us, loves us enough to invite us back, loves us enough to apply the blood of Christ to our sins and our needs, loves us enough to promise to work with us to the end of our life. Lord, may it be the case that by your grace, by your power, for your glory, we come to the end and we leave this life. And on our lips is praise to Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Let's stand together. And we're going to sing.
Spirit, by his grace, use this word to fester in you like a wound that needs attention, that we might rise up as a people responding to the word of God and dealing with this sin by the power of that very same spirit. If we can be praying for you this morning, we're going to have some folks up front here that would love to serve you in that way, and I want to remind you of the the many opportunities we have for you to get involved just outside these doors to the left at the service desk. Get involved. Let us uh, connect with you and grow this church by the will of God. Amen.